John chapter two, verse one to eleven. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, "They have no wine." And Jesus said to her, "Woman, why does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come." His mother said to the servants, "Do whatever he tells you." Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, "Fill the jars with water," and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, "Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast." So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, "Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine." But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. There's a saying that all good things must come to an end. Now that's not absolutely true. It's not that everything good must end, but it does feel generally true. And that saying is meant to perhaps inspire us while good is happening to enjoy it. Sometimes we squander、uh, the good, and and then when it's gone, we realize that we missed appreciating it. So the saying is meant to, I think, stir that kind of wisdom. But but the reality that good things come to an end is itself difficult. And that observable pattern in life is discouraging because when good runs out, it's hurtful, it's、um, overwhelming, it's disorienting, and so the patterns of life with health—it's not that、uh, you can't get healthier through a fitness program, it's not that diseases aren't cured, it's not that there aren't medical interventions—but over the course of life, usually there's a peak somewhere where. Then good health starts to run out, and for some it's unfortunately early.、Uh, but but life as we expect it is usually the goodness of our health is eventually going to go away. And even with our careers, when you're young and and you see the promise of more good, more skill, more upward、uh, trajectory, at some point for most people before retirement. <laughs> The goodness starts to run out. You reach your peak.、Um, you do what you can. You start to get discouraged. There are other people who are better than you, and some it happens unfortunately early. But it can be hard to get through that last stretch, being discouraged. The good is running out, and yet I need to keep going.、It、happens relationally with romantic relationships. Sometimes they start off feeling magical, and we know that the magic may wear off. But a relationship should mature. It should get better, and and yet life. Is often stressful and hard, and therefore the good in us runs out, and we、uh, we start to resent one another. A relationship that that began with such promise. There's so many examples that that wind up 
leaving an impact on us where we think that that's the basic reality, is that good is so temporary, it's eventually going to run out, and that's discouraging. When, when good runs out in a specific way in each of our lives, it's hurtful, it's disorienting. We're looking at a passage here where, where maybe the, the problem doesn't seem dramatic. You're at a, they're at a, a wedding where wine ran out. And in verse 10 later, there's this saying, uh, this wisdom about, well, usually at weddings, the good wine is served first. And the idea is when the good wine runs out, then people, maybe they've had enough food that their palate's not discerning. Maybe they've had enough wine that the next glass of wine is not for the taste, but just for the next glass of wine. And, and maybe, maybe a wise, careful person serves the best wine first, but, but at the end feels like nobody's going to notice. Well, at this wedding, it's not that the best wine ran out. It's all of the wine ran out before people had enough wine that they were able to notice and sufficiently sober that they might remember it. So this is actually a little bit of a crisis. Doesn't sound like the worst thing, but if you were responsible, if you were the bride or the groom, or the hosting family, and, and something that's meant to make this occasion more special than other occasions, if that ran out, then you might not say, oh, it's no big deal, but you might feel humiliated, you might feel ashamed, and you might have the kind of sensitivity that something simple like wine running out, and in the first century, some of these weddings would go for days. We don't know when this happened, but, but there's enough of an awareness of, for those who know that the wine ran out, this is a problem. And so if you were inclined towards superstition and this was your wedding, you might think this was an omen. Oh, this is what's going to happen, is the good is going to run out in our relationship. And so when challenges arise, as they do in all relationships, instead of saying, let's problem solve it, you'll just passively receive it as what you expect for your relationship, which is that maybe the sign at your wedding day was the omen that the good will run out quickly. The relationship's doomed. That's not true, but some people would read it that way. Or if you went into a, uh, the wedding and you were responsible for this and your sense was that your future in-laws didn't think you were good enough for their son or daughter, and then now you were responsible for this and, and there it only confirms there were suspicions of you, uh, that would stay with you. Or dynamics of small town Cana, that every wedding you fear people would be like, what a wonderful wedding. Remember that wedding two years ago when they ran out of wine, like at the second hour, and you're overhearing, yes, that was my wedding. Uh, there could be this sense that you, you just can't, this moment, for the guest wouldn't be a big deal, but for the host would be a huge deal. And yet, in that moment, Jesus is present, something remarkable happens, and John records this for us so that we would see something in it. And so, in verse 11, John tells us this is the first of his signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. Now, we began this sermon series actually at the end of the book and then went to the beginning. But in John 20, John, who writes this, says, Jesus has done many signs, but these are written so that you would believe he's the Son of God, the Christ, and that by believing you would have life in his name. So Jesus did a lot of things, but John says, I've selected out a number of things that are, that are good, that, where God is going to show you things. And if you believe, if you understand what God is showing you, it will be life-giving. So now John signals, this is the first of the signs that I'm, 
I'm presenting to you. And it's helpful that he uses the word sign rather than a word that he could have used, which was miracle. This is a miracle. Jesus turns water into wine. How did he do it? We don't know. And the passage is not uh, determined to tell us. Uh, but what's helpful about the, word miracle, uh, about the word sign, I think some of us think of miracle as like, here's an impossible thing that's meant to impress us. And to a certain degree, the miracles should have you pause and wonder who is this person, what power is there in that person. But the word sign indicates God is pointing us to something. And it's not, it's not entertainment. It's not that you know, God wants you to be impressed with Jesus so that you go away really feeling like you saw something amazing. But, but it's a sign pointing you to something God wants you to see, that the presence of Jesus actually has a significance. And that's what I want us to consider as we look at this passage where Jesus' presence at this wedding that starts, well, however it began, at some point it, it gets difficult. And yet uh, Jesus' presence there leads to actually the ending of the wedding being far greater than they could have planned. Uh, now there's so much wine six huge jars worth that they can invite probably the neighboring nations to come and have some of this very good wine. So the story has that trajectory, but in it, I want to highlight two things that I think that, that will be helpful for us to see, and I'm going to spend most of my time on the first one. In the second one, if I have time, I'll try to bring it in. But I want to spend most of my time saying one of the things that God wants us to see in this passage is that Jesus as the climax to the Bible story can change your story. So Jesus, as the climax to the Bible story, can change your story. What happens here is not just a random event. Jesus was, curiously enough, at a wedding, and then water becomes wine, but it's filled with significance if you're familiar with the Bible. Now, not all of you are familiar with the Bible. And one of the wonderful things about John's Gospel is that that there's an invitation for everyone, and including people that have no knowledge of Christianity. And so you can look at a passage like this and say, you know, what am I supposed to get out of this? And one thing that just at a simple level of not understanding any of the, the deeper things going on here is that because of Jesus being there, what would have been worse than planned became better than possible. Um, Jesus' presence there meant that they planned for a good wedding, it didn't work out, and yet their, their wedding wound up far better. And so, so taking that out would be appropriate as long as you want, don't make the mistake of thinking God is this magical God that if you trust him, your life will go perfect. And therefore, we have to be careful of, of being too simple in drawing out an application. But, but you don't really have to know a lot about the Bible to, to draw away to say, it seems like God wants us to see that Jesus comes into hard situations and he makes them better. And therefore, when he asks you to follow him, it will be for your good. But to prepare us for the complexity of life, which is sometimes things don't go well, and sometimes it doesn't seem like God miraculously intervenes as we want him to, this passage is helpful because God is showing us that, but in the context of a long story. So the Bible uh, records a history of God's people and God's dealings with them over many years. And now Jesus comes as the climax of this story. And so the more you become familiar with the details of that story, the more you see that God is bringing things together in this moment. And that actually helps us mature in the possibilities of that encouragement that God gives us that, that God does have good things in store for us. So take, for example, if, if we were to gather now for, you know, pick six of us to do a Bible study and have a discussion, we read the passage. 
my guess is in a New York audience, verse 4 would be one of the first that would jump out, would say, okay, okay, wait a second, you're saying Jesus is this kind guy, he's a humble guy, he's compassionate, kind to all people. Why does he call his mother woman? That, that sounds like an insensitive term. He could have called her mother, he could have called her Miss Mary, he had a lot of options. Woman. So right there, uh, okay, what do we do with that? Now, some modern translations know from a lexical perspective, just a vocabulary word was actually, it wasn't an offensive term. And so the New International Version, for instance, translated dear woman, that's appropriate, Jesus saying dear woman. Okay, that's a little bit relieving. He wasn't simply dismissing his mother. Um, but you sit back and you wonder, well, well, why is he still using that term rather than uh, her role as mother or her title with her name or some, some other role? Now, assuming that the John who wrote this gospel is the same John who wrote the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, which is what I assume, you know, the book of Revelation, God reveals things to John. He sees things that he tries to put into words. But what's interesting about the way the Bible is ordered, you know, the different books are written at different periods of time, but, but Genesis being first, Revelation being last, you find that a lot of the themes introduced at the beginning become resolved at the end. So there's this tree of life in Genesis. There's a tree of life at the end of Revelation. Uh, there's the task to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis. And then in Revelation, there's this coming together of this thriving community. But in between Genesis and Revelation, it's quite a complicated story. Everything that can go wrong goes wrong. And so the world in which we live, where there's betrayal and lies and murder, all of those things are there. How do you get from, from the hopefulness of Genesis and the possibility to the completion of Revelation? Uh, well, it's this complicated story in between, but Jesus comes to, to bring things together to, to make it possible we would get to that ending. So. One of the first things that we meet in the story of creation in Genesis is that God creates man and woman. And they're representative of humanity. Um, and therefore, when, when the story of the serpent deceiving them to mistrust God and turn from him comes and, and God announces the consequences, um, he, re he speaks to man and he speaks to woman. To the woman, he says, well, one of the consequences of what you've done is there will be pain in childbearing. And, and yet, there's this odd thing that God says to her in there, and yet, through childbearing, one of your descendants, one of your offspring, will crush the head of the serpent. I wonder what those who only had the first five books of Moses thought that verse meant when they read it. I don't know. But you go to the end of the Bible, and there in Revelation 12, John says, here's a vision I saw. A woman crying out in the pains of childbirth. And she has a baby... And there's this serpent, this dragony figure, kind of like the serpent grown to full maturity, wants to devour that child. And the vision is that the child is taken up to the throne of heaven. If you know the book of Revelation, we know who that child is. And the woman goes off into the wilderness. And if you read the book of Revelation, written at a time of persecution, where the church is being driven out, there's this picture of the time of of fulfillment is nearing in the increasing conflict, but actually uh, Jesus being the offspring promised to Eve will come and he will ultimately deal with this serpent. <laughs> and so the following sentence is important. When, when John says woman, if the next thing he said was, my disciples and I are gonna be back in Galilee in about three weeks, prepare the place for us. You know, disciples get a bit hungry and let's be honest, 
um, make sure there's enough wine. That would be embarrassing if I bring them back to Galilee and they think that's like a regional thing. Then Jesus saying woman would feel like he's just one of us, bossing people around. Instead, he says in verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me, this problem of wine running out? That's verse 3. The wine ran out. Jesus, uh, Mary says, Jesus, the wine has run out. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And that word hour signals to the reader of John's gospel that something more significant is going on in this moment. So if you have trouble buying that maybe John was mindful of Genesis and Revelation as he used the language of woman, theologically it fits. I don't know what John was thinking. But you read John's gospel, and this word hour comes up several times. When he says, my hour has not yet come, it's clear in the context of John, Jesus has a self-awareness that he came to accomplish a particular thing that was focused on his suffering on the cross and then his being raised. And so our sermon series is in the first 12 chapters of John simply because the full gospel would take us two years. So we're, we're spending one year doing half the gospel. But the switch from John 12 to 13 is a natural break because from 13, then he's spending a lot of time with his disciples and then the ends come. Let me read to you the first verse of uh, chapter uh, 13 of John. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, and as a side note, uh, the next verses in John 2 tell us the feast, of, the feast of the Passover is about to happen prior to this wedding in Cana. So there's this annual cycle. But now a few years later in John 13, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So that's what that hour is for John. Jesus' hour to depart out of this world. He's going through death and resurrection. When Jesus says, woman, my hour has not yet come, he's highlighting that, that what's about to happen is a sign of what will happen, but it, it's not yet the reality. But let me just point out from verse 13, where, where when the hour comes, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let's just pause there. What's one thing that doesn't run out in Jesus? His love for his people. And there's this pattern of all the other great figures of the Bible, their faithfulness runs out. Moses brought people out of Egypt. He didn't bring them into the promised land. David builds the great city of Jerusalem, but he can't build the temple. Um, every human being in their flaws, eventually the good runs out. The love of God does not run out. So, so this hour is coming because in this long, complicated story, Jesus is going to come to be the one who, who makes sure that the good that's run out everywhere is restored because the love in God does not run out. And so when you put these things together, well, well there's this hour coming. One interesting thing about John's gospel is that Mary only appears twice in it. So Mary, very important in Christianity, very important in the New Testament, very significant figure. Matthew and Luke, when they write their Gospels, they give us a lot of details about Mary. In John, we meet her here in chapter 2 and in chapter 19. The wedding of Cana, and then looking at her own son being crucified. And in John 19, Jesus speaks to his mother again, and he uses the very same term, woman, as he speaks to her. And then he speaks to John, who writes this gospel. John, who doesn't tell us explicitly it's him, but he says, Jesus said to the disciple that he loved, 
And so from the cross, of the very few phrases we have, is John looking at Mary and saying, Woman, behold your son, pointing to John. Looking at John, he doesn't call him John, he says, Son, behold your mother. And then John tells us from that time on, he took her into his home, which means that John is not thinking that Mary's some side character, some unimportant person, but the disciple whom Jesus loved was entrusted uh, with this care. It's a picture of Jesus who is there departing but providing so that there would be a new family, new provision. And so surely in chapter 2, pointing to that hour when he speaks to his mother as woman, there seems to be this indication, not that he's being disrespectful, uh, but that actually something much bigger, something more profound is coming about. And so why water to wine? So if you were with us the last few weeks, if not, you could read the first chapter of John. Jesus is so important that a figure needs to come to prepare the way for him. The last of the prophets named John, John the Baptist, not John who writes this gospel, more than one Mary in uh, the New Testament, more than one John. Uh, so John the Baptist, his ministry, they call him that because that's what he did, he baptized. Baptism was one of the purification rituals. He didn't invent it. There were lots of purification rituals as part of uh, the, the Hebrew religion. It was an outward sign that was meant to say that God in his holiness and his perfection, whenever human beings come before him, there needs to be something that, that pictures God's grace, his forgiveness. And so he gives these signs of washing um, to picture that, that God cleans us up. So when, when John the Baptist says, I've come to prepare the way for the Savior who God is now sending, his preparation is not simply an announcement, but it's getting people ready. They're not ready. So he's baptizing them as a sign. Are you ready? Here's a sign that would give you confidence. When he comes, you should draw near rather than running away. The sign is baptism. Um, one of the things that John says in, that, in John chapter 1 that's very important is John is saying, my ministry is important. I'm preparing the way and fulfillment of the prophets for the, the Savior God has promised. And, and what we're doing is so different that I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. So as much attention as I'm getting, the one coming after me is of much greater value. And so I'm baptizing you to prepare you for his coming. But, but here's what distinguishes Jesus' ministry in the Bible. John says in chapter 1, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so this outward sign God has given to say, I will, I will make you an immoral, an unclean, a discouraged, a hurting uh, imperfect people. I will give you this sign to show you that I accept you with the sign of cleansing. But God has saved the good until now. Um, when he sends Jesus, Jesus will do something internally, not just the cleansing of skin, but the renewal of hearts so that we don't just stand before God in some symbolic way, but we actually uh, have God's presence in us and we can come into the presence of God. That's something nobody in the Bible has been able to do. Only God can do that. And so now we, we see Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. Last week he calls the first disciples, and now they're together at this wedding. Wine runs out. So what does Jesus do? In verse 6, it says there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. They're there and they're empty. So Jesus says, fill those jars with water. But when we draw from the water, 
um, what comes out is going to be very different. And in turning water to wine, however he did it, I mean, that's my curious. When did it happen? Did, was, it, was it once it was drawn out? If you go back to the jars where they already wine, was it as it got tasted? The kinds of questions we have aren't answered. The point is not the mechanics of what Jesus did. The point is here is water that's always been for purification. And now, in this moment, it's become wine. Now, wine, because, uh, you know, even today, um, you know, wine holds great value. The, the, complex, the, the process of making wine is complex. You know, grape juice, you just get the grapes. It's already complex enough that you have to wait for the, the harvest, but you squeeze the grapes, there's your grape juice. Add a little bit of sugar if you need to. Wine, it's, it's a process. It needs to age. And so if the problem at the wedding was they ran out of bread, quick, go make some bread. It could be unleavened. We ran out of meat. Go borrow a goat from somebody, make some meat. You run out of wine, you, you can't just make wine. So, so wine as a sign of celebration, wine as a sign of abundance, you go through the prophetic literature of the Old Testament, and often when God says, one day what I will do um, will be magnificent, there's a celebration, often wine is part of that, it's just, it's a, it's a cultural thing. Read Amos for all of the correction and all the warnings about, you know, uh, this licentious nature, nation and their lack of care for the poor. But Amos at the end, the very last verses, but, but yet after all of this, God will one day show favor again. And wine is part of that. I'm going to read two sections of Isaiah, though, just to give a, a different angle. Isaiah, a much longer book where there's an ongoing warning. If you don't listen to what I'm saying, if, if you join with the nations around you, you can't trust them. They're going to come in and destroy you. And Isaiah says, basically, that's what's going to happen. But the promise is, but one day God will bring you back. So Isaiah 24 gives a, an example of that kind of announcement of the misery that's before them. And Isaiah 5 is an example of that promise of the call back. And I'm just going to read snippets of, of each of those chapters. Isaiah 24, uh, how do you describe what happens when the good is running out in Israel? Uh, they've left God. And now all of the good things God is providing will lead to their misery. Uh, I'm going to read verse, seven, uh, verse 4 and then 7 through 11. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. So here's this great nation, and now they're withering. Terrible things are happening. Good is going out from them. The wine mourns. The vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourine is stilled. The noise of the jubilant ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter for those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. There's a picture here that, that there's nothing celebratory about this moment. So there's no music, there's no singing. But the role that wine plays in many cultures, it, there's, there's no wine here. That, that's a, it, it's meant to, to say this is no longer a joyful celebrating people. These are now isolated, wounded. But the promise of what God one day will do in Isaiah 25, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, 
and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. When Jesus shows up, it's in a context of a group of people who are languishing. They're not thriving. They are discouraged. And the first thing he does is he walks into a mini context where that kind of discouragement is happening. What was meant to be a celebration for these two people have now become an event of shame for the very hosting family. And Jesus comes in and says, actually, uh, there will be an aged and mature wine um, will be served when nobody else would have. They, they will seem even greater. This event will end in a way that nobody could have imagined that they will go down as this being the greatest wedding in the history of Cana of Galilee. Jesus' presence there is not simply because, because he cares for these particular people, although let's not miss that application. Jesus shows up in the lives of particular people in their struggles, and he does things that cares for them. But John says, but I've written this to you who don't know these people who weren't at that wedding, because this is a sign, because it's been a long time that people are wondering, should we still wait on God? Can we still trust him? Things are drying up. The good is running out. We are no longer worthy. How can we trust that God will come? And then Jesus shows up in the very beginning of John's gospel is when he comes, things change. The water that once was an outward sign of purification will become an inward reality. And there will be a cup waiting for you of celebration. So the same John who writes the book of Revelation says, you're all invited to what he describes as the wedding supper of the Lamb. That at the end of the ages, those who have believed and those who have followed will have a feast ahead of them. And so Jesus gives us two signs. We call them sacraments in the church. Baptism, a sign not of ritual purification, but a sign of God's promise that he will pour out the Spirit. That the water that we can see that cleanses our skin is a sign that those who hope in him will have the renewing work of his Spirit in us. And then we take a cup and Jesus says, when you do this, remember me. And we're supposed to remember a bunch of things. I suspect most of us are not remembering that he promised something in the future. When Jesus says, take this cup, and remember me, one of the things we're remembering is God is a God who saves the best for last. There is more good in the future. It may feel like it's running out today, but as we gather as a church, here's a sign as we remember him. But the cup is also meant to be a remembrance, and this is maybe what, if you've been in the church for a while, that you're aware that Jesus takes that cup and he says, this cup is my blood in this new covenant shed for the remission of sins. So do this in remembrance of me. On the one hand, we're given a cup to say, God has far better things in store for his people than we could currently imagine. But let's also remember that getting from water to wine was not something we should take for granted. Because how is it that we can be promised a cup of celebration and a feast in the future? Jesus says, it's because you have broken the covenant. You have not been faithful. You who on your own can't just clean yourself and go before God. I will go and I will become the unclean. I will allow my blood to be shed. I will be harassed and humiliated. I will be judged unjustly so that as my blood is poured out, 
you will receive through what I've done on your behalf real actual forgiveness. No longer a sign, but actually something that's done that makes forgiveness possible. And so Jesus says, come join me by being baptized, receiving this sign of renewing grace. But now remember that the good things God has promised is before you. It's not just some cheap magic trick. But God did this in a costly way that where where we are running out of life, Jesus joins with us so that his life would be spent, so that his love that doesn't run out would be poured out in us, so that if he shares in our death, we share in his resurrection. So the language John uses here, why does he set up this passage in verse 1 by saying, now on the third day this happened? Well, Jesus' hour has not yet come. But we know that his hour is, on the one hand, he will suffer humiliation on that first day of fulfilling God's plan. But in the third plan, he will be raised. And the pattern of life apart from Christ is the best comes some point during life, and then the worst comes towards the end. In this passage, the the wine steward, the master of ceremonies who's surprised that actually the best part of the wedding is happening now, It's a picture of what's happening in the time of Jesus. God has been saving the best for his people at the climactic moment of the Bible. God's people have been suffering, uh, but they've trusted him to the degree that they're still paying attention. And now um, the best has come. And so uh, the third day is a day of transformation, a day of resurrection, a day where blood becomes wine. And, And John has left this story for us to see that. Um, and here I want to get to the second thing. Uh, and the second thing is this, that faith becomes a way of seeing God's glory. What's interesting about this story is that the two central characters, the, what's called the master, and he would have been like the master of ceremonies or the head waiter, the customs were different, but he, he played a key responsibility in, this, in overseeing the wedding and the groom. From the passage, it doesn't seem like either of them had awareness of the crisis. All they know is this moment suddenly got better. Wow, more wine is coming out. It's mature wine. It's aged wine. It's sophisticated wine. Who does this? How much wine do we have? The groom and, and this overseer didn't have an awareness of the crisis, or it doesn't seem just from the reading of this. They simply have an awareness that Jesus having been present, or actually they may not be aware that it was Jesus as present, but, but we know Jesus being present made a radical um, change for them. And, and here's something that we can take away from this, which is uh, all good in this world is by God's grace and generosity. And so we are called to follow him, not simply to be nice to those who are nice to us, but, but to become like Jesus so that as we go out into the world, maybe people through our faithfulness will see something of the truth of the gospel. But, but we have to be aware not all people will. We're not being good as an act of manipulation. It's not the Christian sales pitch. It's, it's a way of life so that if people wind up, all they know is that good came into my life this week because of something. They don't know to give thanks. We want to encourage them. Well, we'll look to God who gives all good things. But, but our existence as a church, for example, is for the good of the city. We want to help people grow, to flourish. If their people are suffering, we want to respond to it. We hope that our response would show something of the grace of God. But whether or not people see it, it's just good. <laughs> but then John tells us uh, in verse 11, this is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
So we don't know if anyone perceived that Jesus there was the key to this failing party becoming the greatest party. But his disciples are aware that Jesus did something that's unexplainable. And John writes this to say, why don't you become a good disciple? Why don't you follow him? And then you'll start to see not just that every now and then things in the world randomly go right, but you'll start to recognize God is a kind and generous and merciful God who provides. And that those who hope in him and those who are following Christ will find that God shows his glory. Now again, wine is, I think, a helpful image here because uh, the sophistication and the complexity, God is going to show us a number of things. He will show us his glory, but God is also going to show us our sinfulness. God is going to show us the brokenness of the world. God will show us our limitations. Disciples have a lot to learn, and it's not all pleasant. But Jesus shows us here in verse 10, you have kept the good wine until now. It's a picture God has more good ahead of us. And so even if following Jesus is hard, which is what Jesus tells us up front, follow me, it will feel like you're dying to yourself, but you will find life. Isn't the nature of temptation the opposite, to make, a, to make everything look great up front and to hide the misery that's ahead of you? That's not how God works. That's not how Jesus works. Jesus says, it will be challenging, but every challenge is something God is doing to produce greater good and ultimately in time, you will see his glory. And at the end of the ages, you will see that, that God is better than you could have imagined. So John invites us, come and see that so that you would follow him. It's interesting with wine. Wine <clears throat> is supposed to get better with age. My understanding is that 90% of the wine that you buy will, is meant to be drunk within one year. And then by year five, it gets sour. But wine experts know there are certain grapes, and if you grow them in certain contexts, and if you bottle them in a certain way, and if the person who holds the bottle takes care of it in a certain way, then it becomes better. Better in what way? More complex, more sophisticated, more interesting, more delicious. Um, human beings don't get better just by existing. You can become old and bitter and resentful and caring less about politeness and so you're just the kind of person that upsets people around you. Getting old doesn't mean we get better. But Jesus says, if you follow me, there's the kind of context created, the work of the Spirit in you, the surrounding of God's provision and love so that actually whoever you are, if the work is inside of you, the work of the Spirit, then, then as you age, you will get better. And it's the kind of better that has that sophistication. You're you're more compassionate on the suffering because you've suffered, but that suffering hasn't produced bitterness. And you're more generous because you can give above your need because you realize this good thing that I would like, I don't need, and so let me give to the person that doesn't have. But this passage reminds us that the Christian life is not all sacrifice, but God shows his glory. God is fundamentally good, and what we're told is when you have the eyes to see what he's doing, you will find that God is always better than you understood. And that's the nature of the spiritual life, that when God is your guide, your teacher, you will find, even in the midst of hard moments, um, God is gonna show you things. And so let, let me say to anyone who's, who's particularly discouraged, if you're, if you're feeling like you're in that moment where the wine has run out, you know, most of us, what we do there, we're desperate, we pray for a miracle, and we could pray for it, and God sometimes does something that shows his glory. The problem is we never know what God is gonna do. 
in those moments, this, this message which is, God always has better things in store, doesn't guarantee that the current situation will resolve as you hope it will. But it does actually guarantee if you, if you stay with God, if, you, if you're watching, if you're following him, in the end you will see in some way that, that God has something far greater at some point. And so that doesn't explain why any situation exists or what choices you make, but it says God is doing something, this world is more complicated than you realize, and God is doing something in the care of his people, and you could trust him. I think John writes this story so that even before Jesus is crucified and raised, we can trust that, that God's goodness was already present in his arrival. And so I would encourage you, uh, keep trusting that God has more good in store for you, and so keep watching and following. Let me pray for us. Our Father, um, we are so easily discouraged. We're so easily anxious. We're so easily demoralized. And Lord, we don't know why good things run out. And I don't know why any here might be showing up in a, in a really hard season of life or just having had a hard life. And Lord, um, we just admit that we are often discouraged and we are weak, and yet, Lord, you promise good things. We don't even know what that means and what it could look like this week, but we pray that your spirit would give us eyes to see your provision, that, that today we would have that hope, that we would remember that you have good things in, in store for us, and that we would press on trusting you so that that future hope, that the future will be better than we could expect or imagine, would really um, ground us to faithfulness. Do that work in us and through our church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.